In a moment, we'll be reading from Jude, verses 14 through 16, as we study that section of Jude this morning. Before we do that, though, I, you know, just getting back from Peru, you, you reflect on a lot of things. And, and one of the things you do when you go to places like we go to in the Chancay River Valley is you, uh, you learn a lot about yourself, for one thing. You, you, go to re- you come to realize how, how, how many material things we have. You, you just learn that, that we have more than you could even imagine when you see these people that have absolutely nothing. And I've learned that on subsequent, on previous trips, but um, this trip I learned something that I never learned before, and it wasn't in Peru, it was back here in the United States. And that was that our staff has far too much time on their hands when I'm away. When I got back into Peru, I began to get emails. My first one I saw was from my son, Will, and he said, Dad, you've got to be kidding. I don't think they're going to think this is very funny. But it wouldn't, the whole thing wouldn't load. He had forwarded something. It didn't load. And then I got a letter from my friend in California, Walter Price. And he said, I, I think this is what we really mean by true contextualization. I'm proud of you. I'm glad a Bama fan has finally seen the light. And then I get an email from Vic and Jenna Minton saying, I really liked your Grace Notes article this week. Knowing that I didn't write a Grace Notes article this week. And so I began to speculate that maybe our staff had too much time on their hands, but I didn't know that for a fact yet. But finally, when I got to a place that had a, a good Wi-Fi, which happened to have been Starbucks in the, on the Ovalo in, uh, in Lima, the rest of it came through, and there was this, I could tell from the first, there was a, a little top of an A and the top of a K. I kind of figured that out. And the, it was sort of headed from an A to a K, and it said something like, after spending a week with Mike Pope and Mary Lou Priddle and who else do you say? Somebody else. And Clark Cash. Uh, uh, after spending a week in, the, in Peru with these three eminent people, I have finally seen the light and have decided to renounce my allegiance to Alabama and become a true blue Kentucky wildcat. <laughs> and it closed with C-A-T-S, cats, cats, cats. <laughs> And I knew by then our staff had too much time on their hands. That will be remedied this week. Uh, That will be taken care of and never again. And even Sue was involved in it. So disappointed. So disappointed. We did have a great week, and I did learn a lot more than that uh, in the Valley. We We saw at least eight people make professions of faith in Christ, perhaps 12, we'll find out. Now, again, we'll follow up on those. Uh, in, in Peru, it's just like here, a lot of people will pray a prayer and say, a, say something when they're in a, a situation where they're going to get something and they, and they think somehow they have to do it. So we'll follow up on those and Todd will have these to follow up on. But I see, I was moved by, uh, uh, you don't know Maria, I, I really wanted to put her picture up here today and show you. Maria is the only believer we found when we went to Banos for the first time. And Maria's got to be 70s, mid-70s or so, and her mother is still living and lives with her who, uh, bless her heart, she sat through my Bible study and was more awake than some of the others that were there, and she can't hear. She's stone deaf 
but she sat there, and uh, it was kind of neat. But, but Maria, when we got to her house after Banos, at that point I knew of three at the clinic that had trusted, had professed Christ anyway, and I, uh, I told her about it, and Maria's comment was this. She said, uh, thank the Lord. With those three, we will change this city. Uh, it was just, I mean, I just got cold chills. Here, and of course, I was t working through an interpreter, and, and we, talked, uh, we talked about John chapter 6 and just dealt with the whole chapter, 71 verses in that Bible study, but had a great time together there in, in that. Had a great time with the church in Vichacocha and had a great time with uh, a few believers in Pacareas in Bible study. So uh, just it's great to see that we went there two and a half years ago for the first time and all we saw was darkness. And now we're beginning to see light begin to spring forth. We're beginning to see people come to faith in Christ. So it was a great trip. It was a great trip. It was the hardest trip physically I've been on ever. Uh, and you can speculate all you want to on why that is. Uh, how many of you, you know, you may just be getting too old for these trips, Bill. I refuse to accept that reason. But uh, it, was a great, it was a great trip, even in the midst of, uh, of some physical difficulties I had myself. And I thank God that he led us to the Chankai River Valley. I really thank God that he has led us to that people. A people, you know, when, when you look in the Old Testament, this is not my sermon, by the way, you'll get it in a little bit, uh, but when you look in the Old Testament, it, it says that when God, when, when God called the Jews to be his covenant people, they were the least among the nations. Nobody thought anything about them. They, they were just they were the, they, they were considered basically outcasts the, the 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 unnecessary ones and in many cases that's the way the people of the Chankai River Valley are they are they've been neglected by their government they've been neglected by by uh, everything comes along some have come in in kind of a, a frenzy and then left and and nothing far they've just kind of been seen as the lesser and and i'm so glad glad that god called us to minister to a group of people that nobody else really wanted to care about they're not great in number they won't see millions come to christ but but we are seeing people come to christ and for that i am so grateful to god i'll one of the things that struck me when i was talking to the to the uh, nurse uh, leo leonardo in, uh, in Banos about setting up the eye clinic for when uh, October when Todd takes a, the team and Mark Huffman's going to be doing eye clinics down there I, I asked the church, the, the, church the, the nurse in Banos if we could come and have an eye clinic there and, and he said yes and I promise you I will be here that, at the, on that day because he travels back and forth to, to Warall a good bit and he said I promise that I will be here that day and then I want to say the reason I promise that I will be there is because when you say you're coming you come. You, you, you keep your word to the people of Banos. And I just sort of extrapolated from that that evidently there have been those who haven't kept their word. And so it, it's good that, that, that God is using us to, to be accepted now in many ways among the, the people. We even saw some come to Christ uh, too in, in Santa Catalina, which has been totally resistant to any of our ministry totally resistant. They're, they're not only very Catholic in the sense that the Catholic Church sits in the middle of the village, they are very, uh, they're very controlled by that, that idea, even though there's not a priest there except twice a year. 
but they're afraid of anything that's not tied with that church, the Catholic church. So we're seeing inroads that are just phenomenal. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful to God, and I thank him that he led us there. Well, we'll talk more about it in days to come, I'm sure. In, in the book of Jude, in the book of Jude, verses 14 through 16 this morning, I want you to hear the words of Jude. We, we, I feel like I haven't been in this in a month, and it's only, only missed one Sunday, but we know what Jude is doing. He's, he's wanting to talk to them about the common salvation, but he's having to warn them about these false teachers, and piece by piece he builds the case against them. And he, he comes to this passage, 14 through 16, and this is what he says. It was also about these men, that is the false teachers, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way. And of the harsh things, you could put the word blasphemy in there, the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, that is against God. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Now, Jude starts out by quoting 1 Enoch 1.9. Now, would you, in your Bible, turn with me to 1 Enoch 1.9. Oh, good. I don't see anybody trying to find it. That's good news. It's not in the Bible. But, but Enoch did write a couple of books that were considered apocryphal books. Not evilly apocryphal books, just were not considered to, be, to meet the criteria of inspiration by those who brought the canon together. But the book of Enoch is very historically uh, significant, and it carries with it some true teaching. And, and part of Enoch, at least, is brought into the inspired text of God by Jude as he quotes him in this particular uh, passage. Now, I wouldn't say go and look at First Enoch. You, you can get a copy of it and read it and read First Enoch and say, oh, this is a word from God. All of it is not considered as inspiration. But since Jude in his inspired text here that God did include in the, in, the, in the canon, since he quotes him, we have to consider that what Jude is quoting here is actually a truth from Almighty God. And he quotes Enoch one, first Enoch 1.9 by saying Enoch prophesied. Enoch lived in the seventh generation from Adam. And that's how you'll find him listed in the genealogies, uh, genealogies in, in Genesis. He said, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Now, he uses the past tense. But as we know, in many times in prophetic utterances, uh, such as in even Romans chapter 8 and, and chapter 9, we find what is going to happen in the future being spoken of in past tense because it is the, pro it is the prophetic certainty. He's saying in the past tense because even though it's going to happen in the future, it is so certain that it's going to happen that you can speak of it as though it were in the past tense. In Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, it talks about those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he, he, he uh, uh, glorified. 
and the idea of glorified is that which will happen to the believer when we stand face to face with Christ in heaven. We will be made like him. We will be in a glorified body. We will be free of sin and free from the presence of sin and free from any influence of sin over us. We will, uh, we will be glorified when we stand with him. But it's such a certain thing for the believer. It's such a secure thing for the believer that the apostle Paul would say not only did he justify them, not only did he call them, not only did he justify them, he also glorified them. And he speaks of us as believers as being already glorified because it's that certain. So Enoch is saying here, and Jude is quoting Enoch as talking about the Lord coming. This is his second coming. This is when he comes in judgment. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. Now, judgment is something that we don't like to talk about, we don't like to think about in our day. I realize that. We, like to, we live in a day that is a very tolerant age and not a judgmental age, theoretically. We live in a day when everybody says, we'll just live and let live, get along, let uh, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, and, and, and your truth is good for you, is true for you, and my truth is true for me, and, and we'll let those truths just stand, even though they're diametrically opposed to one another, even though they are contradictory of one another. We live in a day that says, all, you know, all truth is relative, there is no absolute truth. Well, Jude is saying here that I want you to understand that God is coming to execute judgment on all. Every living thing, every living person that's ever existed. And I don't want you to miss this. And, and he says he's coming to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds. Now, we as Christians sometimes use the word convict in sort of a positive light. You know that I, I was convicted that that was sin, and I confessed it, I repented of it. He was convicted of his sin, and he repented and, and trusted Christ. I mean, we, we talk about to convict uh, many times as something that someone sees the light, the Holy Spirit moves in their life, and they are changed because of it. The word convict here is a much more judicial form, a much more judicial usage of the word convict. If, if one stands before a judge in a, in a courtroom uh, charged with a crime, they will be convicted if they are guilty. And by being convicted, they will be sentenced. And that's the way Jude is using this quote from Enoch here. He's coming to execute judgment upon all, and he's coming to convict a certain, a certain group of people. He calls them ungodly. All the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. You know, it, would it not have been fine to have just said he's coming to convict all of the ungodly of their deeds and all that they've done? Well, certainly it would. But there's a certain emphasis here. There's a certain certainty here that, 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 that Jude wants to be sure we get a hold of. The problem here is ungodliness. The problem with ungodliness is, it is, is it's living life as though God doesn't exist. Ungodliness as opposed to unrighteousness. When we think of those two terms, ungodliness and unrighteousness, many times we think of them as synonyms, synonymous with one another. They're not. When we think of ungodliness, that, uh, that, or, or excuse me, unrighteousness, that is a type of, of, of behavior that is going against righteousness. It's a, it's a sinful behavior. When we think of ungodliness, 
Ungodliness leads to unrighteousness, but they're not the same. Ungodliness is living life as though God does not exist or as though God doesn't matter. Now, that's significant because there are a lot of people who are sitting in the pews of our churches every Sunday living life as though God doesn't matter. There are many people who've raised their hand, prayed a prayer, gone through baptismal waters, who, who say, oh, I'm, I'm fine because I've done all that. It's stuff I've done, but it's not been trusting God and, and, and believing in Christ in such a way that life is lived in a way that God matters and God is trusted and God is consulted with and God is viewed as the, the ultimate in one's life. Ungodliness means living as though God does not exist. And those ungodliness, those ungodly people, uh, uh, they, are, they have ungodly deeds, which are unrighteous, which they have done in an ungodly way. The, the point I think Jude is wanting to make here, and it's a very important one, is that if you choose to live your life as though God does not exist, you cannot be one of his. If you choose to live your life as though God does not exist, it's evidence that I don't care how many times you've gone through a baptismal pool. I don't care how many times you've prayed a prayer, raised your hand at an evangelistic meeting. If you choose to live your life as though God does not exist, then you are not in him. You, you are not walking in him. You are not really in him is the point that Jude is crying out here. And he's saying these false teachers, these false teachers, they teach and they say, oh, we believe in Christ and, and we're part of your church and, and we're doing all these things and, and, and look at us and we'll teach you. But Jude says... They are proven not to be what they say they are because they live as though God does not exist. You understand that? It's practical atheism. It may not be atheism that says, I don't believe in God. God doesn't exist. It may not be the Richard Dawkins or the Christopher Hitchens type of atheism, but it's an atheism that is practical and that is incipient and that is really more damaging than even the Dawkins and the Hitchens ever could be. It's the one that, the psalmist says in Psalm 14, 1, for the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. That is saying in his heart, it's kind of that it's hidden. It's not, it's not an outcry of, I don't believe in God. It's, it's something that's inside. It's something that's, that's a part of your inner being. It's something that you just live with. And that's what ungodliness is. If if you face situations in life, troubles in life, difficulties in life, and your first response is, oh, what can I do about it? Not, oh, God, what are you wanting to do with me through this? God, how are you going to see me through this? God, how are you going to use me in the middle of this? Then it becomes ungodliness. Because it's living life, viewing life, viewing circumstances as though God really doesn't matter. So God's not really there. That's why so often we, we talk about how the world looks at the church and they don't, 
they don't see anything different about us because we, we grieve the way they grieve. We, we, we worry the way they worry. We struggle with the same problems they struggle with. And, and it's a matter of trying to do it ourselves. The scripture says, you know, we ought to look to him, trust in him, know that he is with us always, and he is seeing us through it. But yet, if we live the same way they live, if we worry the same way they worry, that is ungodliness. It's living life as though he is not there. It's living life as though he really doesn't matter. He says they've also said harsh things. All the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Blasphemy. You know, I, again, I, I think on the, on the day of 9-11, 10 years ago, at one time, I had a collection of things preachers wrote, things that, that preachers said, and I've long since lost it uh, somewhere. It's probably in my office somewhere. I just can't find it. But I, 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 uh, I, I, I had a collection of things they said, and some of the things they said was, you know, well, well God had no control over that. God would have loved to have stopped that, but he just, he, he's, he's decided to withdraw himself so much and give us our absolute free will that those guys had the free will to fly in those towers and, and, and God couldn't do anything about it. He would really have liked to, but he couldn't. That's ungodliness and ungodly speech. There were others who said, well, you know, um, well, I think that's the most ungodly. I won't give them a lot more illustrations because I'm, I'm running out of energy here. But, but the point is that those who claim to speak the things of God, those who claim to be teachers of the word, and yet who speak things that are not true about God are blasphemous. They're speaking harsh things against him. 9-11 didn't catch God by surprise. God didn't say, oh man, I, I really wish I could stop those planes. He could have. He could have slapped them out of the air with just... And it'd be gone. Wouldn't even be taking that much. For whatever reason, and, and I can't tell you all that there is about God's providence that let that day happen. I don't know. I'm not going to stand here and tell you, here's why he let that happen. I don't know why he did in all of its totality. I was hoping that, as I said earlier, that it was to call us to a spiritual awakening. It didn't happen that way. They speak against him. They say things against him that are not true. And I love the way he describes them in verse 16. These are grumblers. They're grumblers. They're always finding fault. Following after their own lust. And here, lust is not a word that, that we tend to think of lust necessarily. It doesn't mean they were lusting after sexual things. It just means they were they were they were they were going after, they were following after their own desires. The, these are grumblers. They find fault with everything. They complain about everything. But it's not just the things that we see. They complain about the providences of God. You know, I, I've, I've sat with people numerous times. Now, I, I understand this to some degree, but I've sat with them and they said, I can't believe God let this happen to me. Oh, really? Why not? I don't say that. I'm much more pastoral. But, you know, it's, 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 I don't deserve this. Oh, really? No, if you're like me, you deserve far worse. But, but the point is, 
they, they grumble against God. They grumble against his providences. They grumble against the way God is doing things. They find fault with everything. And they follow after their own lust. They, they pursue their own desires. You know, several years ago, there was this big fad that has basically died out. I think it's probably a good thing because it was the wrong question to ask. But it was the question, what would, God, what would Jesus do? WWJD, on bracelets, on car bumper stickers, on license plates, I mean, everywhere. what would Jesus do? Well, that's really not the question. The question really is, what has God said we should do? You know, Jesus was God. I mean, he could do a lot of things we couldn't do. He, he, could, he could heal the sick, raise the dead, cause the blind that had been blind from birth to see him. He, Jesus could do all sorts of things. And, and, and we can't always just look at a circumstance and say, well, what would Jesus do here? Well, he'd probably just clear the house. But the question is, what has God told us to do? How has God told us to live? What has God told us to believe? See, all too often, and, and our American culture demonstrates this so much, rather than seeking God's way, we seek our own lust. We follow after our own desires. We follow after our own passions. We want what we want when we want it, and we want it now. Never think to ask to say, well, God, is this what you want in my life? Again, that ungodliness. God, is this what your purpose is? In my life, they're grumblers. They're finding fault. They're following at their own lust. They speak arrogantly. They, they, they raise themselves up to place of authority, and they, they speak very arrogantly uh, toward everybody else. And finally, the reason they do that is they are flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Have you ever known anybody like that? You know, they'll flatter all day long. That, that, there's a difference in flattery and sincere praise. You understand that? Sincere praise is good. But sincere praise is usually geared toward a character quality or a, or a spiritual quality or praising someone for their... Uh, for their, their faithfulness to Christ. I mean, that, that's sincere praise. Flattery is usually something to try and get, you know, upper hand. It, it may or may not be true. I mean, you, you know, you, flattery might be as, and it might be as innocent, some might say, as, as your wife coming home with a hairdo that is absolutely horrendous, and you say, oh, that really looks nice. I'm not looking at my wife. I was just scanning the congregation. <laughs> but generally, even that, there is to gain an advantage, if even a small one, in the marital relationship, if that is indeed done. You know, it might, it can be used in so many ways to, to just superficially flatter somebody. It says these people do it for the sake of gaining an advantage. It can be viewed a couple of ways. Gaining an advantage of superiority over them so that they will look up and say, oh, you're really smart because you see that about me. Or more likely it means for gain, this, this gaining an advantage here, 
It's talking about a monetary advantage, gaining something monetarily from them. But the whole point I want you to see is these false teachers that Jude is dealing with here totally, totally act in their own interest. They totally act of their own desires. They totally act out of their own wants. Not based on what God wants. Invariably, they, they don't seek the will of God. They seek their own will. They seek their own desires. Consistently, they, they do what is best for them, not what is honoring to God necessarily. And Jude just says, listen, avoid them. Avoid them. Don't imitate them for, any, for, for, for heaven's sake. Don't even think about imitating them. But avoid them because these are the ones on whom judgment will be executed. Conviction will come. God will deal with the ungodly. Now in this next section we're going to look at, and we'll finish this book, Lord willing, next Sunday. That's a lot of verses to deal with, seven or eight verses. But we'll probably finish this book next week, Lord willing. And I want you to see, he turns a little bit and says, now keep yourselves in the love of God. Be sure that you guard yourselves. Remember what you've learned. And don't follow after those who would falsely lead you astray. You know, we live in a day, we live in a day where false teachers flourish. And they flourish within the institutional church. They flourish within many pulpits because they can flatter. Because they can, they can manipulate. Because they can twist emotions. And Judah's saying, listen, you are to stand not on the, the flattery of these people, not on their lack of seeking God's purpose and will, but you're to stand on the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The gospel, the truth, the authority of God's word. That, that all of these things distract from that. All of these things turn us away from that. And he started this book by saying, I have written this to you to encourage you. I have written this to you to beseech you. I have written this to you to beg of you. Contend for the faith that was once for all given to the saints. That was passed down from the apostles. We are to contend for that faith. We are to stand for that faith. We are to proclaim that faith. We are to defend that faith. We are to, we, we are to show false teachings apart from that faith every day and not be gullible and not be drawn in by those who would not teach God's word. That's the importance of what Jude is talking about here. And that's important to what we need to hear on this Lord's Day. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you that you are a mighty God, that you are a God who rules and reigns over all of your creation, that you are a God who is sufficient for all things and has called us by your spirit, by your word, and by your truth. Speak, O Lord. May we hear your voice in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.